That was the chorus to the song Penny Lane, a Lennon-McCartney composition. But spoiler alert, what you just experienced was performed not by the Beatles, but by Stroll Down Penny Lane. And that is just what you are in for, a Stroll Down Penny Lane. And this is Joe Anastasi of the Pantheon Podcast Network, your narrator for our exploration back through time, in fact, covering some 65 years of music where we celebrate the life and music of Paul McCartney. So let us begin. There will be three threads in our narrative today as we investigate this song, Penny Lane. First up will be the creation story, if you will, with respect to the genesis of this song. Second, we will examine some of the songwriting elements that make Penny Lane such a compelling song. The third thread in our narrative today covers the other song that is inextricably linked to Paul's song, Penny Lane. So here we go. Let's use our little time machine and go back 20 years or so. All we need to do is press this button. And here we are. We have landed in the year... 2001. For in this year, in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, George Martin described the genesis of Paul McCartney's song Penny Lane. He recalled that it resulted from a subtle kind of competition between John and Paul. We had just recorded Strawberry Fields Forever, George Martin explained. And so with this clue from George Martin, we first turned to John Lennon's song, Strawberry Fields Forever, which represented a nostalgic remembrance of John's childhood days growing up in Liverpool. It turns out that the actual Strawberry Fields was a Salvation Army children's home, and this private estate was just a stone's throw from John Lennon's childhood home in Woolton, a suburb of Liverpool. Hunter Davis has documented how John Lennon and his young friends would explore the garden grounds surrounding this children's home, Strawberry Fields, and how each summer John would be excited to go to the garden party that was staged on the grounds there at Strawberry Fields, calling out to his Aunt Mimi as he heard the Salvation Army Band starting up. But in writing this song about the complications of his youth, some darkness had come, an inner reflection. And in John's words, he described his song as a sort of psychoanalysis set to music. The song, however, had a profound effect on Paul McCartney. And to observe the influence that John's song had on Paul, let's use our little time machine again. This time to go back to the year 1966. We'll press this button again. We have arrived in the year 1966. November 24th, 1966, to be exact. We find ourselves seated in recording studio number three at Abbey Road. 
we can see that George Martin has arrived, as well as John Lennon and Paul and Ringo and George Harrison. And in our mind's eye, we can also see that the EMI amp room engineers, in their white lab coats, have already positioned a Neumann U47 microphone, one each, to point at the face of John's and George's Vox guitar amplifiers. There is another Neumann 47 microphone on a stand placed in one area of the room where John is sitting with his acoustic guitar. He is getting ready to play for the others in the room for the first time his song, Strawberry Fields Forever. But today, it is to be a very stripped-down arrangement of this song. What I mean by this is that the others will be listening to just John and his acoustic guitar. It is a very personal moment. Our ears today would sense that something is missing. This is because the famous intro using the Mellotron keyboard hasn't been devised yet. Jeff Emmerich, the Abbey Road balance engineer at the recording session this day, recalled that as John finished the song, there was a stunned silence in the room, finally broken by Paul, who in a quiet and respectful voice stated, That is absolutely brilliant. It didn't escape George Martin at the time that this song, which John had written about his youth in Liverpool, seemed to serve as a kind of stimulus for Paul for him to write a song about his childhood memories, too. And so here we have the result of this little competition between two creative souls, the song Penny Lane, which we will explore today. For in Paul's song Penny Lane, we are present also in Liverpool, but this time at a Liverpool bus stop, where as teenagers John Lennon and Paul McCartney often met. So let's use our little time machine once more to take us further back in time another 10 years or so. We'll press this button again. And here we have arrived. The year is now 1957. We are just across the street from a bus stop in Liverpool, England. But the thing is, even today, at the terminus of this bus line, there is still a barber shop, and we are standing just in front of it. So fix this in your mind's eye, if you will, for as we peer inside the glass front of this barber shop, you will see that Paul accurately remembered the existence of photographs on the walls. In Penny Lane, there is a barber showing photographs Of every head he's had the pleasure to know And all the people that come and go Stop and say hello Paul recalled that also in this area, just down the street from the barbershop on the corner, maybe 30 yards away, was a bank. And this was just enough inspiration for Paul to create the bit about... On the corner is a banker with a motor car The little children laugh at him behind his back And the banker never wears a mac In the pouring rain 
very strange. When Paul takes us into the upcoming chorus of the song, the chorus explodes into a sunshiny expression of joy. In order to accomplish this sensation, Paul transitions us into a new, sunny, musical key. Let's examine this to understand what is happening here. In music theory, the term for this transition that is just about to happen is that we are, quote, modulating, unquote, into a new key. In order to transition to this new, sunny key center for this song, Paul primes the pump, so to speak. How does he do this? Paul determines that he's going to select a specific new chord to use, a chord that shows up for the very first time in this song. And we can observe that Paul has placed this new chord at the very tail end of the second verse, knowing full well that this new chord will prepare our brains to listen for this coming modulation, this change to this new key center for his song. So you may ask, what is this new chord, the one that Paul chose to place at the end of this verse? Well, he selects a chord that will serve as a dominant five chord. This new chord will prime our brains to anticipate something, and that something is this. Our brains are primed to expect, or maybe a better description is that our brains are actually primed to predict what the very next chord will be in this song. And with this kind of computational prediction, our brains are primed to anticipate and like the fact that we are about to enter the new key center that Paul is intending to take us to. And it turns out that this dominant five chord in this arrangement of the song is a D chord. And here, Paul's choice represents a clever twist. Why a clever twist? This is because Paul, just here at this juncture, is exploiting the fact that this D chord is the dominant five chord of a specific chord that Paul is intending to target. It turns out that the chord he next wants to land on, his target, is the G chord. And why do our brains have this distinct expectation? Well, as a first order of explanation, this is the result of millions of years of evolution. Our brains are constructed this way in order for us to survive, to succeed, and multiply. And the second order of explanation is quite thought-provoking. Our brains, this little computing machine in our skull, forms this distinct expectation when it identifies the sound of this D chord at the end of this verse. And this computational expectation occurs because of the simple fact that each one of us, our brains really, has processed and analyzed in our lifetimes many millions of seconds of perceived soundscapes, including music. For millions of years, our brains have had the need to analyze the sound landscape around you to determine whether it is a low-pitched growl, to determine whether the sound is coming closer, to determine the nature of a high-pitched scream, To determine whether the sound is coming nearer or going away from you, the brain analyzes whether the sound it is analyzing represents a threat and tries to determine the answer to this question. What is it? Your brain needs to know. It is switched on all the time. 
Our brains are phenomenal computational machines, and they are always processing what we hear, whether we are actively listening or even when the music that we hear is playing in the far background. Our brains can't escape taking in these sounds, organizing them, detecting the patterns in the sound, determining if there is a danger and whether there is sadness or happiness, and therefore no threat. All these little clues to the soundscapes in our lives. And one soundscape is represented by the music we hear. Now back to what Paul did that is so interesting in constructing the chorus to this song, Penny Lane. As I was saying, we were reviewing Paul McCartney's choice of a D chord to take us into the chorus of this song. Stated another way, this dominant five chord, a D chord in this arrangement, will pave the way for our brains to perceive that we are being led into a new key center for the song. To be specific, this new key center that Paul is intending to target is the key of G. And D is the fifth scale degree in this new key of G, where the G chord is the new one chord. Just here we can listen to Paul's choice of this dominant five chord, a D chord. Now with this new chord standing in for the first time with its appearance at the end of this verse, our brains subconsciously expect this dominant five chord to naturally resolve to its related one chord or tonic, just like here. But how do our brains subconsciously expect this? It is because we have heard this similar resolution of a dominant five chord to its one chord or tonic chord many, many times throughout our lifetimes. And our brains even experience an endorphin release when this happens. Our brains are wired this way. We get a little squirt of dopamine when this happens. Kind of a payoff, if you will. And we like this feeling of endorphin release, and we get it as we experience this resolution on these chord changes. Stated another way, our brains expect that something very specific may happen, and then when this expectation becomes fulfilled, we feel good. Now, our Paul then tips us into this sunny chorus. But as he does this, he does another very crafty thing, and this is simultaneous to this chord change. And what he does is pretty slick. He actually announces to us in his lyrics that something like this impending change is just about to happen. Because just here, he announces, just as this strange new priming chord appears, that it is, in fact, very strange. Stated another way, he tells us in his lyrics, just here, that the chord change he has inserted is very strange. And at the same time, he is putting our brains on notice that something is about to happen. This represents unity of construction in songwriting, and it is very crafty. As we enter the chorus of the song, Paul changes the mood of the song. Now you may ask, how can Paul change the mood of a song? To explain this best, I need to back up just a little and arrange the deck chairs a little, so to speak. If we do a little forensic investigation of the verse of this song, we will discover something quite profound. We will discover why it is that the upcoming chorus, as Paul takes us into it, will sound so sunny. 
And to discover this, we need to dissect the second verse of this song, as this second verse is just preceding this upcoming chorus. Why? Because the clue that we will find is buried deep within the verse itself. And when we take apart this second verse to this song, Penny Lane, and lay it out on the examination table, this is what we find. So here we go. Let's look closely. We can now discern that Paul has constructed the eight bars of this verse to be twofold. What I mean by this is that even though the verse sounds to our ears as being one thing, a flowing single melody or section, the verse is really composed of two separate things. Let me explain, because when I discovered this, I found it to be really fascinating. What I mean by the verse being composed of two different things is this. Each verse is eight bars long, or eight measures long. The thing is that the first four bars of each verse represent one idea, or phrase, or thing. But the second four bars in each verse exemplify a different separate thing. You can think of these second four bars in each verse as being a kind of altered thing. Altered thing? That's a good construct, so let's hold on to that. So what are these two different things? Well, the first part of each verse, being the first four bars of the verse, are constructed in a major key. And in our arrangement of this song, we are in the key of A. So this being a major key, it represents a sunny, upbeat kind of feeling. Let's listen to an example of what I am describing. This is the first four bars of the second verse, and I will count the four bars one, two, three, four, as we go through the beginning of this second verse. On the corner one, is a banker with a two, motor car. The little children laugh at him behind his four. back. We've cut off this verse, so to speak, just at the end of four bars. At this juncture, the object of interest for us to focus on is this one simple fact, which is that what it is that we are hearing here is in a major key. It sounds sunny, right? In your mind's eye, imagine this scene. We are all at the side of this examination table, peering down intently, forensically examining the way Paul constructed this verse. <gasps> so let's turn to the remainder of this verse that we have lying here on the examination table. Let me describe what we can observe here in front of us. We have the next three bars of music, but as we listen to these next three bars of music, we notice something darker now. Let's hear the accompaniment by itself in the next three bars of the verse so we can focus on what it is that is just a little darker here. What we have here is the fact that Paul has abandoned completely the major key, in this case, the key of A. In fact, a key part of Paul's melody in this part of the verse is a note, a tone, which represents the flat third of the key of A. And it is the signature tone, describing that Paul has transitioned us into this new minor key center, the key of A minor. And this note is found twice in the melody in this second part of the verse, and I would like for you to hear it. For we can find the example right here in the second verse. And for fun, we'll honk the horn, if you will, when we get to this flat third note. 
the minor tonality. You'll hear it each time you hear the word clean. He likes to keep his fire engine clean. It's a clean machine. The note that occurs each time we heard the two honks happens to be a C natural note. And we heard that note in the melody each time the word clean was being sung. In this case, it turns out that this C natural note is the flat third note in the key of A. Let us demonstrate. Here is the natural or normal third note in the scale in the key of A. A, one, B, two, C sharp, three. And now, this next time, we again are going to land on the third degree in this scale, but we'll flatten it, making it a semitone lower, so it will then be the flat third. A, one, B, two, C, three. The thing is, without this note in Paul's melody, at this juncture in each verse, the song would not be the same at all. Now, this was no accident on Paul's part. Recall, I pointed out two things previously. First, I pointed out that John Lennon had composed Strawberry Fields Forever, and it represented an introspective look at John's childhood experiences. And John's song has a kind of sadness. And recall, John described composing his song as being a sort of psychological self-examination through music. The second thing I pointed out earlier was that George Martin definitely observed that Paul's writing of his song, Penny Lane, was in response to Paul having been so affected by his first hearing of John's song. Now, John's song was mournful. Paul McCartney, on the other hand, can't help himself. What do I mean by this? I mean that every other day, Paul falls out of bed in the morning, he ends up writing a happy, uplifting song. Good day, sunshine. Good day, sunshine. Good day, sunshine. And Paul's song, Penny Lane, is no exception to this sunny aspect of his melodies, except for this one thing. What is this one thing? Paul, in the second part of each verse of his song, Penny Lane, has deliberately chosen to go into a parallel minor key center, a mournful, darker key center. But now, with Paul's selection of this minor key in the tail end of each verse, and in our arrangement of the song, we find ourselves in the key of A minor, things are going to pay off big time and soon. What is this? A big payoff? That would be Talkback Mike and his notion of a payoff. But I like endorphin releases. Right, you do. I've noticed that. But here, I am talking about a different kind of payoff. A musical payoff. Because now, at this point in this song, Penny Lane, Paul is going to lead us into the chorus of the song. And he chooses to dump us into a new key and... Voilà. This new key, it turns out, will be a major key, and therefore, in contrast, it will be a sunny, bright-sounding key center. And this is no table knife he is using in crafting this song, because what he is wielding is very sharp, for it has two edges. The first edge, if you will, is that he has brought us into a new key center 
which our brains will find to be interesting, and this just because it is different. And the second edge, continuing with our little metaphor here, is the fact that this new key center in this arrangement, the key of G major, will pop. TBM, is that the sound of a soda can popping open? I'm not saying. Or a can of beer? It's a can of sardines, Joe. Ah, I've always been interested in sardines. Did you know sardines, pilchards, are a nutrient-rich, small, oily fish widely consumed by humans and larger fish species, seabirds, and marine mammals. Sardines are an important source of omega-3 fatty acids. They are commonly served in tins, but fresh ones are often grilled, pickled, or smoked. Sardines are related to herrings. The term sardine was first used in English during the early 15th century and may come from the Mediterranean island of Sardinia, around which sardines were once abundant. Rabbit hole, Joe. Rabbit hole. Well, anyway, back to my story. Recall that I said that Paul's changes to a new musical key center in this song when he brings us into the chorus, that this change will effectively pop. And what I meant by this word pop is that when he causes this key change, I mean that the contrast that our brains discern that is happening will be huge. And why is this? It is because we are leaving a minor key center something inherently mournful and dark, and we will now explode into a major key center, something bright and sunny. And here it is. Listen for this contrast. TBM? Talk back, Mike? We've got a little technical problem. What's that? You took the verse apart. I did take the verse apart. Indeed, I like taking things apart. I like forensically examining something and putting it all out here in front of us on the examination table. Well, right now we have a mess on your examination table. Don't worry, we can put it back together again. Well, why don't we reassemble it right now? Resemble. Not resemble, reassemble. Reassemble. Okay, we've put the second verse back together again. So now, as we listen to it, Let's focus on the very ending of this verse as Paul leads us into our next forensic adventure. And what is that? Examining what it is that Paul did to prepare us for the upcoming chorus of the song, and then for us to experience how the chorus cracks with the bright sunny contrast to the end of the preceding verse. On the corner is a banker with a motor car. The little children laugh at him behind his back And the banker never wears a mank In the pouring rain Very strange And he lays in my ears and in my eyes There beneath the blue suburban skies I sit and me We'll be right back after this short break, so stay with us. We're back now with the Pantheon Podcast Network, and this is Joe Anastasi of Stroll Down Penny Lane, your narrator for our exploration of the life and music of Paul McCartney. 
and let's continue with our analysis of the song Penny Lane. Okay, we've reassembled things on our examination table in front of us, but we're not quite done yet with our forensic examination of what it is that is so interesting about Paul's construction of the chorus of this song. Because as we look at what is lying in front of us here on this examination table, we can observe something else that doesn't happen very often in pop music. For when we hear something else happen in a song, something that is unique, something that doesn't happen very often, our brains perk up. Our brains subconsciously register a question. What was it that we just heard? And when we examine this chorus again, just a little more closely this time, we see that the key center that Paul chose to use for the chorus is unusual indeed. He modulated or changed keys. We've just examined that subject. So we know that it is a fact that he changed keys. But what he did is interesting. And what he did is this. When he modulated, he took us to a very strange and unusual key. What did he do that is so unusual? Well, when he modulates to the chorus of this song, Penny Lane, he did not modulate up a key like he did in the song, And I Love Her. She brings to me, and I love her. In the chorus of Penny Lane, Paul did just the opposite of this. Instead of modulating up like he did in his song, And I Love Her, this time around with his song, Penny Lane, he decides that he will modulate down. And in so doing, he modulates down from the key of A, and he then proceeds to head down to the flat seven of that key, the key of G in our arrangement here. Now the trick or device he uses to accomplish this is this. He uses a pivot chord, the D chord, which is common to both keys. Another way of saying this is that the D major chord can be naturally found in both the key of A and in the key of G. In summary, this pivot chord allows Paul to seamlessly pivot from one key, the key of A, to another key, the key of G. The important notion here is all about what our brains perceive or what our brains think they perceive, or stated in a different way, what our brains will notice when they are attempting to compute and correlate this soundscape. And this pivot chord that Paul so skillfully chooses to use, this pivot chord which is common to both the key of A and the key of G, allows our brains to accept this transition from one key center to another without any fuss no bother at all. It's kind of an effortless passing of the baton because the D chord is found in both the key center that Paul is leaving and it is naturally occurring in the key center he is targeting to take us to. And by modulating to G, which was the flat seven of our previous key center, which was the key of A, by the way, Paul guarantees a captive audience, with G now being the new one chord. He's got our attention. But are we now stuck forever in this new key, the key of G? The answer is a resounding no. No! No. Because to get back to the original key, 
Paul deftly chooses another pivot chord, the E7th chord in our arrangement here. And in making this chord selection, he is priming our brains to expect a change to come shortly. Stated another way, our brains subconsciously expect that another shoe is about to drop. Sounds like my producer, Talkback Mike, has lost his shoe. Anyhow, back to my story, and when Paul McCartney primes our brain to expect this shoe to drop, when it actually happens, when this expectation gets fulfilled, we will get an endorphin release. Our little espresso shot of dopamine that our brains so like to get. And by using this pivot chord, this E7th chord, to serve as a dominant 5 chord, Paul is leading our brains to expect our pivot back to a very specific place. And what place is that? That place is the original key center of the song, which is the key of A. But... Regarde. TBM, I love it when you speak French to me. <laughs> I didn't say anything. Well, whoever it was, I think she said... Regard. Regard what? Well, the thing to regard is that in crafting this chorus to this song, Penny Lane, Paul uses the words in the lyrics to again tell us what is just about to happen in the underlying chord progression in the song. Recall, he did this earlier by announcing in the lyrics that something very strange is about to happen, just as he prepared to dump us into the chorus section of the song. And now he does it again, for the second time now, just as the chorus finishes up, when he tells us that something is again about to happen, that another shoe is about to drop. Our producer, Talkback Mike, is now barefoot. Anyhow, Paul McCartney is preparing our brains to expect that a change will come, and our brains will patiently wait for this change to happen, because we will expect to be led into the next verse of the song. And you can hear this just here in this next excerpt, where Paul has devised the words in the last line of the lyrics of the chorus to describe to us as listeners just what is about to happen. And meanwhile back. Because just on these words, meanwhile back, Paul determines to use this new dominant five chord, in this case, in our arrangement, an E7 chord. Paul uses this five chord to target the next place where he wants us to land. Beyond using this dominant five pivot chord to target his next landing, this pivot chord is also chosen by Paul because he knew that it would prime us to feel good. He knows that we will feel good when this new dominant five chord resolves to its related one chord, or tonic, just like right here. And with this, Paul deftly swings us back to the new key center, or should I say, the original key center of the song, and in our arrangement of the song, the key of A. I should say here that when this song was performed by Paul's band and Elvis Costello at the White House, where President Obama awarded Paul McCartney with the Library of Congress Gershwin Prize for Popular Song, Elvis Costello chose to perform Penny Lane in the same key center, the key of A which is two semitones lower than the recording that was released by the Beatles in 1967. 
Elvis Costello with his choice to perform the song in the key of A in that performance in the East Room of the White House made it feasible for the piccolo trumpet to join in for this live performance of Penny Lane with Paul's bandmates. So let's see how Paul gets us into the chorus of the song and then back out again to the verse section of the song. He does this first by modulating into a new sunny key center as he plops us into the chorus. Very strange. And then, after having so deftly accomplished plopping us into the chorus of the song, when we arrive at the end of this chorus, he does something that you will find every storyteller do, and this is down through the ages. He says two words, meanwhile, back. And with this, he takes us back to the tale he is telling about his childhood and the characters inhabiting his memories of Penny Lane. But hold on. Because as he tells us to hold on, that is, meanwhile back, he is using the E7 pivot chord to modulate back to the old key center. So here we go with this example in this song. We hear this first clue with his very strange. And then we hear his second clue with his meanwhile back. These two things are special. They are more than clues. They are bookends. Very strange. Penny Lane is in my ears and in my eyes. Now, we move to the third verse in this song. Barry Miles has documented Paul McCartney's explanation for how the third verse in the song Penny Lane was generated. Paul was described as saying, John came over and helped me with the third verse, as was often the case. We were writing recently faded memories from eight or ten years before. Pleasant memories for both of us. So that afternoon, together... John Lennon and Paul McCartney devised a fireman in a firehouse. And so, I believe that Talkback Mike's fire truck will come in handy now. Hey, TBM! Yes? You have a bell on that fire truck that's sitting in your driveway? Sure! Well, let's hear it then! In Penny Lane, there is a fireman with an hourglass And in his pocket is a portrait of a queen he likes to keep his fire engine clean. It's a clean machine. Now Paul has fessed up. The fire station was a bit of poetic license. There is a fire station, but it's about a half a mile away. And it is on another road. This is the Rabbit hole, Joe. Okay, okay. But as Paul has recounted about the creation of this third verse to Penny Lane, he said, We needed a third verse, so we took that, and I was very pleased with the line, It's a clean machine. Hey, TBM! Yes? Here's a test. You have two seconds to answer this question. What is meant... 
by in his pocket is a portrait of the queen. Rabbit hole, Joe. It's the paper money, the British one-pound note. Queen Elizabeth's portrait is on the currency issued by the Bank of England. Can't you just see, in your mind's eye, John Lennon and Paul McCartney cooking that one up? One more time. Come on, TBM. This time you get three seconds. Why does the Penny Lane fireman have an hourglass? Rabbit hole, Joe. Okay. All right, now we finish with the third verse. Now, let's continue with this little tale about the genesis of this song, Penny Lane. For at this juncture, we come to an interesting intersection, and that is this. What to do for an instrumental solo? And the story unfolds this way. At one of the Abbey Road recording sessions for this song, Paul brought up what he had been so impressed with that he had seen the evening before on television. It was a BBC series he had seen. And Paul kept asking George Martin about this tiny little trumpet he had seen that had been playing in the show. Paul couldn't believe the fantastic sound that had come out of the instrument. Here, one more time, George Martin's classical training would pay off in spades for the Beatles. That's TBM and his notion of a payoff. But I like endorphin releases. Right, you do. Where do you put all that money? Forget that I ask that. <laughs> Willingly. But here I am talking about a different kind of payoff for the Beatles and Paul. It would be a musical payoff. George Martin's knowledge of classical music was encyclopedic. And so George Martin described to Paul that what Paul had heard the evening before on the BBC was a piccolo trumpet. George Martin even offered that. The chap playing it was David Mason, who happens to be a friend of mine. And with this, our David Mason, the David Mason, that performed the famous instrumental solo on Penny Lane for posterity, was booked for the Beatles' next recording session at the Abbey Road Studios. It turns out that what Paul had heard was the English Chamber Orchestra and our David Mason playing the Brandenburg Concerto No. 2 in F major by Johann Sebastian Bach. But that, that was the evening before. In other words, that was then. What do I mean by this? I mean that the next day, however, would be an altogether different experience for our David Mason. And just to be clear, Christian Swain and our Pantheon podcast friends from Rock and Roll Archaeology might prefer this point of clarification, that the David Mason in our story is not the Dave Mason of the rock group Traffic, who also played with Paul McCartney and George Harrison. Our David Mason is a Philharmonic Orchestra trumpet player. And why is it that this next day in our story would be an altogether different experience for our David Mason? For our David Mason, our piccolo trumpeter extraordinaire would be playing something hitherto unknown, and he was to be playing it for Paul McCartney and the Beatles. (laughs) 
Why do I say our David Mason, our piccolo trumpet player, would be playing something hitherto unknown? I say this because what he would be playing didn't exist. And so the process the next day in the Abbey Road recording studio would be quite a different experience for our David Mason, piccolo trumpeter extraordinaire. For when he arrived, the part he was to play had not yet been devised. And as he sat there, David Mason would observe Paul McCartney singing variations, one after another, of notes our David Mason was to play. And then, when settling on the variation that he liked best... Paul would then turn to George Martin, who would furiously jot down the score for David Mason to play. And the part that Paul ultimately settled on went like this, as transposed for our arrangement of this song. George Martin would later recall in his book, All You Need Is Ears, that the result of using David Mason and the piccolo trumpet in this song was unique, something that had never been done in rock music before, and it gave Penny Lane a very distinct character. Okay, next up, in our little creation story about this song, Penny Lane, the fourth verse of the song. Paul next brings us to another remembrance he had, and this was about a shelter in the middle of a roundabout. Behind the shelter in the middle of the roundabout, a pretty nurse is selling poppies from a tray. And though she feels as if she's in a play, she is anyway. Here, Paul was recollecting an actual bus shelter, a little building, which was known by the locals as the Penny Lane Roundabout. It was located at the terminus of the Penny Lane bus line and was used as a place to meet people or shelter from the rain while waiting for a bus. Paul and John would often meet there, and as Paul recalled, it was also where someone would stand and sell you poppies each year on British Legion Poppy Day, where John and I would put a shilling in the can and get ourselves a poppy. That was a memory. We fantasized the nurse selling poppies from a tray. Now, we have finally arrived. We have finally arrived where? We have arrived at my favorite explanation of something that is happening in music. This better be good. It is, because it involves a truck driver. Like in my fire truck? Ah, now there's an idea. Can you fire it up, please? Sure, here you go. I told you it would come in handy. Right, you did. But I wonder what the neighbors think of your fire truck in your driveway. Anyhow, now Paul McCartney does this truck driver thing when he does his final modulation in this song, Penny Lane. He modulates from the final chorus in this song into a sort of outro chorus. And this is where this truck driver thing comes into play. For Paul intends for us to change key one last time. And he does this by what is referred to in the music industry, at least here in America, He does this change to a new key using what is called a truck driver's modulation. The notion here is that the songwriter doesn't prepare us for a change of key. 
that is a modulation, by using the tried and true five chord to pivot us to the new target key center, using the pivot chord to prime our brains to expect this change of key center to happen, no! In the truck driver's modulation, the songwriter, Paul in this case, just does it. He or she just forces it to happen. And here it is in the outro or the final chorus to our song here, Penny Lane. And for fun, we'll grind the gears a bit again, our little gearbox effect, if you will, just as this truck driver's modulation occurs on the change to this new key center. And what we'll do here is we'll interpose our little gearbox effect so you, the listener, can perceive exactly when this truck driver's modulation is happening. Okay, we have covered the first thread in our narrative today, the genesis of this song, its creation story, if you will. And we explored the second thread in our narrative today, the songwriting elements employed by Paul in devising this song, the songwriting features that make Penny Lane so interesting and compelling. Now we have arrived at the third thread in our narrative today. We have now come to the point where we can address the other song that is inextricably linked to this song, Penny Lane. Hey, Joe, you already covered that. I did? Yes, you did. You pointed out that John Lennon's Strawberry Fields Forever served as the impetus for Paul to write his song, Penny Lane. Sure, but now I want to talk about the other song that is inextricably linked to Penny Lane. It's the third thread in our narrative today. You've covered that already. In 1967, the Beatles released a double A-sided single, Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane. I would say that suffices to link the two. The two songs are each contained on flip sides of the same 45 RPM record. Interesting. You said the double A-sided single was released. That is an interesting word choice. TBM, why did you use that particular word, released? Because the single that was released had Strawberry Fields Forever on one side of it, and the other side of the single was Penny Lane. A double A-side is a single where both sides are designated the A-side, with no designated B-side. That is, both sides are prospective hit songs, and with this, the expectation will be that neither side will be promoted over the other. Again, interesting, but you've got the wrong single that was released. Come again? I've got a trivia question for you. Rabbit hole, Joe. No, no. TBM, bear with me here. What song kept Penny Lane from reaching the number one position on the UK charts in 1967. Rabbit hole, Joe. No, really, this is relevant. Do you know? No, I don't know. What was it? 
So here's the thing. These two songs, Release Me, performed by Engelbert Humperdinck and Penny Lane by the Beatles, are inextricably linked, joined one to the other. The two singles battled for the number one position for weeks in the charts in England. Here is the background to this story. Early in 1967, Engelbert Humperdinck was asked to stand in for Dickie Valentine, who was ill, on a TV variety show called Sunday Night at the London Palladium. This TV variety show in the UK was the equivalent of the Ed Sullivan Show in the US and was one of the highest rating programs in the UK at the time. And this was Engelbert's big break. So on the UK TV show that evening, Engelbert sang, Release Me. The reaction in the UK was massive. Engelbert Humperdinck's recording of Release Me immediately climbed the UK singles charts, reaching number one, and it stayed there, immovable, for six weeks, blocking Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields Forever off the top spot in the process, week after week. Engelbert Humperdinck's recording hung in there doggedly, remaining on the charts in the UK for a record 56 consecutive weeks. Before this, no other song had kept the Beatles from reaching the number one position in the UK charts. In the US, however, it was another story. Penny Lane's Strawberry Fields Forever did hit number one in the US charts and remained in the top 40 for nine weeks. Engelbert Humperdinck's recording of Release Me never rose higher than number four in the U.S. charts during this time. What a battle! But there is no winner or loser. These are two fabulous songs. They are both presented by the respective artists in a simply terrific way. But it is this battle that did occur that explains why it is that these songs are inextricably connected forever. And it is why we are pleased to have presented the two songs here in this podcast. In Penny Lane, there is a barber showing photographs of every head he's had the pleasure to know and all the people that come and go stop and say hello on the corner is a banker with a motor car the little children laugh at him behind his back and the banker never wears a mac in the pouring rain very strange penny And meanwhile, back in 
Penny Lane, there is a fireman with an hourglass. And in his pocket is a portrait of a queen. He likes to keep his fire engine clean. It's a clean machine. you enjoyed this podcast of Stroll Down Penny Lane. Please join us again next time as we explore further the life and music of Paul McCartney. And if you're in the neighborhood, come see us at one of our shows. You'll find us at strolldownpennylane.com.